The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Matthew chapter 10, before we turn our attention there though, I must call attention to one who does not want attention called to himself, but I am thankful for you, Brother Gary Yeldell, for leading us in worship this morning. You know, I, I volunteered myself to lead, and then Pastor Clay volunteered, and for some reason Pastor Scott said, no, we better we better seek some more help to lead worship this morning than myself or Pastor Scott, uh, Pastor Clay. And uh, thankfully, uh, Brother Gary Yeldell um, is here to lead us in worship. What a sweet time of worship it was as we now turn our attention to the Word of God. I want to begin by calling your attention to a song, probably the most famous contemporary Christian song of my lifetime. I believe, according to Wikipedia, I don't know if you can trust Wikipedia all the way, but generally it seems to give factual information. Uh, They record this song as being one of the most well-played, well-known, especially in the secular realm, Christian songs of, of my generation. Uh, it is entitled, I Can Only Imagine, written and, and sung by Mercy Me. Uh, everyone in the room, I would imagine, has heard this song a multitude of times in your lifetime. Uh, the chorus is very profound of that song. The song is, is a, a picture of what it may be like someday when we actually stand before God in all of His glory, in the glory and splendor of who He is, of His majesty of heaven. I can only imagine... He says what that will be like, surrounded by your glory. He writes, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah, or will I be able to speak at all? It's a great juxtaposition. I think I said that $100 word rightly juxtaposition of of setting us beside one another of two different contrasting thoughts. Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? What's it going to be like when we're in the presence of God? Will we be able to dance or in, in the awe of His glory will we be still? Will I stand in your presence or, or to my knees? Will, will I fall down in response to your majesty? Will I be able to sing or am I going to be so overwhelmed that I, I may not even be able to speak? You know, I think our day and age, even believers in the church house in our day and age, we make a lot of dancing and standing and singing. But we know very, very little of, of, of sitting still in awe, of falling to our knees, and of not being able to speak at all. To word it in another way, we, we, we know much of this experience of worship that we sort of produce, that's emotionally driven, And we know very, very little of what is called the fear of the Lord. Even the terminology there, the title of the sermon this morning, the fear of the Lord, it's a a foreign concept to modern day Christianity that, that God would be one who ought to be feared. I fear we've made God so much like us. And we've taken the grace of God and the love of God, which is is rightly known through Jesus and what God has done for us upon the cross, and we we lighten God and we we make Him to be like us in in our 
even in our fallenness. And, and so many people have made God to be this bubble of love and grace and mercy that, that is there to just overlook all of our wrongdoing, that is there to just grant our every wish and, and be with us through our, our every desire, that, that God has been turned into nothing more than a, a genie of sorts, nothing more than a, a, a tender-hearted grandfather who's there to give every wish to his grandchildren who never do any wrong. And we know little of what it means to tremble. To tremble before the Lord. To, to enter His presence with a, a fear and a, a trepidation, a, 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 an almost an, an anxiousness that we know that, that God is other, that God is greater, that God is far more glorious than we ever deserve to know or, or experience. And this is much to our demise. It's a, it's a horrible thing that we don't fear God, as even the Bible calls us to. You realize if you've read your Bible, all through the Bible, it speaks of fearing God. All through the Psalms and the Proverbs. I thought about reading some of them, but it would take forever just to read a handful of the times that the Bible elevates the, how right it is that God is one who is to be feared. That God is one who is to be revered. In the passage we're about to read in Matthew chapter 10, if you've been with us, you know Jesus has commissioned His 12 disciples on this first missionary journey, so to speak, before, before the cross. This isn't the Great Commission. This is the first commission at the onset of Jesus' ministry. And He sent His disciples out to Israel only. And He says, you, as you go forth, are going to proclaim the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he gave them a severe warning. He said, as you do it, you will face great, great persecution. And I believe that word was meant for them then and there, but even more so for them in, in the future, and even in our context, and in a latter day, and in day context as well. But the bottom line is, I can only imagine, as they were warned about the severe persecution that was going to come upon them, Jesus saw their faces change from, from a face of such motivation and, and excitement about what was to come to fear fear of people, the fear of circumstances that they would be caught in. And so Jesus has a word for them regarding really them overcoming their fear of man and in rightly developing within their heart a fear of God. That the, the fear of God would actually be a fear that would dispel, that would cast out the fear of, of man, that that it's even implied by what Jesus is teaching here, what we're about to read, that if you get a right fear of God, he was telling the disciples, if you get this right fear of God, it's a fear that brings you to peace, that brings you to security, that brings you to a place of being guided by God and safe in the hands of God and, and strengthened by God, no matter what life brings, no matter what even people may do to you, because you know the one true living, almighty God. Matthew chapter 10, verse 27. We'll begin reading this morning. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do 
here, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, verse 27 is really just a repetition of the commission they were given, that they were to go forth and they were to proclaim what Jesus had told them. What Jesus told them in private, they were to share in public. There is an application here that is powerful to us today that I'm going to just briefly summarize in that Jesus and Christianity does not call us to secret knowledge. It doesn't call us to an inner select group of those who are in the know on a higher spiritual reality or spiritual plane than than everybody else. Uh, the, The message of Christ was, what I have told you in private, you're to go to shout it, proclaim it from the mountaintop, speak it from the rooftop. It it isn't a secret knowledge um, group that was gathered together here. They were commissioned to go and and publicly proclaim to all. There is an openness to the Christian faith. Whenever you get a cult that claims a secret knowledge and that is a a closed sort of mentality or even a a, a group or a fraternity of sorts that claims a secret knowledge and they hold secrets only for the upper tier of their their little hierarchy of leadership, be, be, beware. It's not of Christ. Christ says, speak it forth publicly, proclaim it aloud for all to hear. There is nothing secret about the, the message that God desires for humanity to come to know and to understand. And so Jesus tells them, go shout it everywhere what I have told you. But then he says in verse 28, he he says, as you do that, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him, fear God, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. He's saying, "Don't, don't go out with a fear of people. Don't, don't be guided and directed in life out of the fear of, of people and circumstances that prevent you from serving me as I'm calling you to. Don't go and accommodate the message that I've told you to the group of people that you're speaking to based upon what response you think they are going to have to it. He says, no, you speak what I've told you to speak. You declare it boldly. You declare it faithfully. And as you do it, don't, don't fear people, but rather fear God. There are so many scriptures that warn us of the importance of fearing God rightly. Goodness, to read just a few. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. Write that down. There's 40 or 50 of these fear of the Lord verses in the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord, it says, is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Psalms 14.1 says it's the fool who said in his heart there is no God. That, That if you come to rightly know God and rightly understand God and therefore rightly fear God, it is the beginning of living a life of wisdom. The beginning of living a life of true value and true purpose. The beginning of of understanding. Hebrews chapter 12. Just read one more for you. Verses 28 and 29. That song that was just sung is based heavily upon this passage. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, it says, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. 
If I were to ask you as you walked in the door this morning, tell me something about the God that we serve, the God that we're about to sing to, the God whose word we're about to read, I, I would venture to say, not even myself, none of us would have said, our God's a consuming fire. We would have all, in one right sense, but also in a flawed sense because of the way we, we, we misconstrue the reality of his consuming fire nature, we would have all said, oh, God's a God of love, God is love, God is grace, God is mercy. We, we love the God of grace and mercy, and we don't know what to do with a God who is a God who says, I am a consuming fire. And in Hebrews 12, what we just read, it says there's an acceptable way to serve God, and that implies that there's also a way that is not acceptable. And what is the acceptable way? The acceptable way to serve God is with a godly reverence and a godly fear. Reverence and godly fear. Jesus is warning His disciples, don't be so filled with the fear of men, but rather fear God. And what I want us to see this morning in the time that we've got left is that He gives us some reasons why we ought to fear God, or even how we ought to rightly fear God. That, that Jesus points us to some attributes of God and the expressions that He gives to us about some sparrows and the hair on our head. I want us to look through these and, and just consider personally, privately, individually, that, that, that thought within your own heart, do I rightly fear God? Do I have this sort of fear of God that Jesus is commending here that, that, that makes it where I don't fear man? That makes it where I am at peace in God, no matter what life circumstances are? You know, I just sitting in my notes, but just thinking, it was laid upon my heart earlier, even driving to church, just thinking about raising kids and the difficulty of raising kids and how you can do so many things right and, and kids turn out to love the Lord or not love the Lord and do so many things wrong and kids turn out to, to, to love the Lord. There, there's just not a magic formula, but what I think is definitely true is that you must instill in your children the fear of God. And just thinking of Families I know that are so centered on behavior management and it's all about how you behave and, and, and how others think and what others will view you as. And pastors, I believe, can be the worst at this because we're living in a fishbowl, but there's such a pressure that, well, they're watching and people are watching and, and the reality is no, no, God is watching. Like what must be instilled in them and what ought to be instilled within our hearts is the awareness of, of Almighty God who is present always in our lives. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the, the knowledge of the Holy One, the beginning of understanding. Let's look to some of these attributes, and I hope as we get a bigger picture of God this morning that Jesus is pointing us to, it will rightly develop within our hearts a fear of God that is right and fitting and healthy. First of all, notice verse 28. We must consider God's wrath. God's wrath. Something we don't talk about often. As little as we talk about the fear of God, we talk about the wrath of God. It's not a popular subject in modern day Christianity, and yet the Bible speaks often of God's wrath, as Jesus does in verse 28 when he says, Don't fear those who can only kill the body, but fear him, fear God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The reality that God is the eternal judge of all humanity. That God is the one 
before whom everyone will stand someday. And to understand the Bible's teaching that God is a holy God, that God is just in all that He is and in all that He does, that God is perfectly righteous by His very nature. He is the the, the definer of, of what is right, what is holy. He is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is not that God will someday judge us by an external standard that we must meet. No, He's judging us by His very nature. It's immutable. It's unchangeable. And to understand the wrath of God, what that means is that because He is holy and He is just and He is immutable, He is unchanging, that when that which has rebelled, all humanity is born in sin because of the sin of Adam and Eve, and we're, we're wicked. Just look around. Just look within your life. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When sinners come to relate to a holy God in their sin, what, what, what the relationship is described as is wrath from God. That, that God has a righteous indignation towards that which is sinful, towards that those who are sinners. Meaning that there is eternal judgment even that He must pour out upon you and me. That, that God is the one before whom all will someday stand accountable. And in that day of reckoning, He, if He's righteous, will do what is right. And He will condemn sinners and their sin to eternal damnation. That is what Jesus is pointing us to here. That that reality that what can man do? Man can only kill you physically. But but God is the one who, who not only has brought about the first death because of sin, but the second death, eternal death, eternal damnation. He is the one who can kill both, both body and soul in hell. Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. Listen to the word of God. The Lord is jealous and an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth heaves before Him, and the world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. Isaiah 26 and 21, For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it, and will no more cover its slain. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We don't read those verses well enough. And the reality is, if we don't understand the wrath of God, we will never understand the grace of God and what He truly poured out upon Jesus when Jesus became sin for us, He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. You will not know the love of God that we'll close with in a moment until you rightly understand the wrath of God. That God is holy and God is just and we are not holy, and we are not just, and therefore we cannot enter His presence without experiencing wrath, without being condemned rightly, because we are sinners, and 
He is holy judge. Do not fear Him who can only kill the body. But fear the One who is the consuming fire who can destroy both body and soul in hell. When you consider the wrath of God, you will rightly begin to fear God. Notice, secondly, Jesus doesn't just leave us there in a, in a message of hopelessness. The, the word continues. He says, also consider God's sovereignty. The sovereignty of God. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground, apart from your Father's will? That the God that we serve, that the God that the Scriptures call us to is not a God who is far off and unconcerned with what's going on here on planet Earth. That He's not a God who is up in heaven, unable to do that which He pleases, and weak and, and, and unable to accomplish His will. That the Bible says, no, the, the God who is the God of the living and the dead, the, the God who is the one true living God, God Almighty, is a God who is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over even the bird that falls to the ground. It does not happen apart from the will of God Almighty. To define God's sovereignty, a definition, a good definition that's been given, it's God's right and God's power to do all that He decides to do. It involves His omniscience, which we'll talk about in a moment, that He knows all things, His omnipotence, that He's all-powerful, His omnipresence, that He's in every place at all times. Now, don't, don't, think that God's sovereignty negates the will of humanity. God doesn't force man to sin. Man sins because we want to sin. Okay, you do what you do because you want to do it. But here, this, the Bible makes clear that the sin of man does not thwart the purposes of God. That God's purposes are actually carried forth even when man is rebelling, even when man of their own will goes awry, God's purposes still stand. God's purposes are still being accomplished. It's pictured beautifully even in the death of Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter speaking, and he says, uh, accusing the crowd that was literally there as they shouted out, crucify him, crucifying, it says, it says him being Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. So God had planned this thing, that, that His Son would be crucified to bring about the redemption of all who would turn to Him by faith. It was according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And yet He looks to them and He says, Yet you have taken Him by lawless hands and have crucified Him and put Him to death. That man did it out of the hardness of their heart, out of a rejection of what Jesus was offering to them in that moment, but all the while, the purposes and the plans of God were being carried forth. There's a great mystery in this, which I don't have time to dive into any deeper this morning. But to merely throw it out and let you know the Bible teaches man is responsible. We're culpable for our actions. And yet God is above even the, the will of humanity that mankind will never accomplish something. That God says, oh my goodness, I never saw that coming. How in the world are we going to work this thing for the church to to to, to, to be formulated, for the church to grow, for the, the, the coming of the Christ of Jesus to, to happen in the future. God, God is working all things to their appointed end. A few Bible verses. Write Psalm 115 and verse 3 down. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. First Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 12. Yours, 
O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah chapter 46 verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Jesus points his disciples to God's sovereignty even over the unimportant little bird that falls to the ground. And it did not happen apart from the will of the Father. And it is meant to to produce a a fear within the heart of the disciples and awe at the the glory of God and His majesty and His sovereignty that, that nothing escapes Him and that nothing will overcome Him and that nothing will catch Him off guard and that nothing will happen where God will say, oh my goodness, I can't, I can't fulfill the purpose that I had now because they did this or they did that. No, our God is a sovereign God. When you come to see the sovereignty of God, you will begin to fear God rightly. Notice thirdly, the omniscience of God. Our God is omniscient, meaning omni-all, science, meaning knowledge. Our God is all-knowing. Jesus tells them, and he says, you know, you know the number of hair on your head right now? Some of you, that's not hard. So I, can, I can tell you the number. No, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> the number of hair on your head right now, is it hair or hairs? God, God knows, disciples. You don't know it because you're finite. You're limited. But your Heavenly Father, God, God knows such minute details about everything. There's literally nothing that God does not know in life, in your life, about you, or about even tomorrow. To to understand the omniscience of God, that God knows everything. 1 John 3 In verse 20, it says that even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and He knows all things. Turn to to Psalm 139. It's one of the most beautiful psalms in our Bible. Go ahead and turn there. I want you to lay your eyes upon it. Psalm 139. And it's a psalm that just elevates the omniscience of God, that He knows everything, the omnipresence of God, that He is in all places. No matter where we go, we cannot flee His presence. And and it's it's a a right heart expression of David, honestly in the fear of the Lord, in in an utter amazement at the omniscience and the omnipresence of God. says verse 1 of Psalm 139, Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off, and you comprehend my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways, for there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God, you know everything.
everything. I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know what trial or burden it is that you're facing. I don't know what secret sin it is that you're hiding. But God does. God is omniscient. God knows the word on our tongue before it is spoken. Verse 5, you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, God, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall become as light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us to realize God knows it all, all the time. God sees it all, all the time. You consider the omniscience of God, you will begin to rightly fear Him. Notice fourthly and lastly, not only do we think of God's wrath and His sovereignty and His omniscience, but lastly, most amazingly, verse 30, we also, I'm sorry, 31, we also must consider God's love. He says, God. God can destroy both the body and soul in hell. And by the will of the Father, not even a bird falls to the ground and He doesn't know it. And He knows even the number of hairs on your head right now, so He knows everything there is to know about you. But then He closes this little section by repeating the command, do not fear, don't fear people, don't fear circumstances. Why? Because you are of more value than many sparrows. Now he's speaking about God being the one who determines value. You are of more value to the God whom I'm calling you to fear, to the Father, than than many birds of the air that he's already said a little while back, God takes care of the birds of the air and the lilies of the valley. He's going to watch after you. He's going to care for you. He says, don't you realize that not a bird falls from the sky that is not of the Father's will? You are of more value than they are. His eye is on the sparrow. No, he watches me. So many verses we can look to, but I'll just summarize them. Psalm chapter 8, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? God has placed humanity as the apple of his eye, the pinnacle of his creation. Hebrews chapter 2 speaks of, of, of God not sending Jesus to die for the angels even, but he sent Jesus to die for you, for me, for, for humanity. There, there's a, a special place, a value. We have been created in the image of God. We read John 3.16, For God so loved the world, and the world meaning humanity there, not, not, not cats and dogs, no, cats and dogs don't have eternal souls. I'm sorry that we'll be in heaven. There will be cats and there will be dogs, but it's not your cat or your dog. I hate to burst your bubble this morning. God, God has designed humanity specifically with a soul that is eternal. He's written, written eternity on our hearts. And, 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 and it's for humanity that Christ came and that Christ died. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
that, that whosoever believes in Christ, who has become that atoning sacrifice for us, that, that God who is holy and God who is filled with a righteous indignation towards sinners, it's been said of him that, that even while we were yet sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That, that God in his grace and in his mercy provided a way where he could be both holy and forgive us, and he did it through Jesus. He's the mediator. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him, because no one can come to the Father but by him and through him. He is the mediator. He is the atoning sacrifice. The the love of God that has been shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, it ought not to lead us to treat God flippantly. It ought not to lead us to make God out to be this big bubble of love that we can come to to get our ticket into heaven and then go about and live our lives however we want to in disobedience and sin and in wickedness. He says in Romans 6, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall those that have died to sin live any longer therein? If we've been redeemed and come to experience the, the, the magnitude of the grace of God that washes away our sins and separates them as far as the east is from the west, as we read in Psalm 103, if we come to know the forgiveness of God, it ought to produce within our heart a right fear of God, to consider His love for us. One of the mystery passages of of dealing with the fear of God has always been Psalm 130 and verse 4. And it says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. But with you, God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now we want to think, with you, God, there is forgiveness that you may be loved and cherished. Or we might word it, with you, God, there is judgment that you might be feared. But the psalmist writes, No, God, with you there is forgiveness. And that if we rightly understand the forgiveness of God, it leads to the fear. The fear of God. We think of the fear of God wrongly. We think of fear in its fallenness. We think of fear like we fear the boogeyman. Like we fear death even. Like we fear other people. But the fear of the Lord is something far greater than that. It's hard to define, but we know it by experience. The the fear of the Lord that is a, a right understanding of His holiness, of His omniscience, of His sovereignty, of His love for us, that, that captivates our heart and our attention. That, that leads us to live with an, an ever present awareness of His presence, that that He is there, that that He is sovereign over everything and every person that we come across, every circumstance that comes our way, that that His Word is to be cherished and obeyed because He is holy and just, even though He is gracious and merciful. We we rightly fear Him, acknowledge Him in our living, that we we set out to follow Him, to obey Him, to, to serve Him. The feeling of amazement and reverential awe of almost a disbelief at how unbelievable it is that He could love us as He does. A a feeling of nothingness before someone so magnificent and glorious. That that is the fear of the Lord. That we are called here not to fear people, but to fear God. And that we consider, when we consider God's love, we, we rightly will come to fear Him. And we know His love rightly through Christ.
Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 18 says, To whom then, whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to Him? You know, I've never been to the Grand Canyon. It's on the bucket list. But I have been to the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone. And it's not quite as large of a hole in the ground, but it's a pretty big hole in the ground. And there's a beautiful river, uh, Yellowstone River, that has a couple of waterfalls, the biggest of which flows right there into that canyon. And I can remember as a teenager standing before that big hole with that waterfall way, way, way off in the distance and seeing trees that I knew were, were great, great trees that looked like little ants all speckling the sides of this canyon. And before such something, before something so so much bigger, so much other than me, like I, I remember in that moment having that sense of awe. That, that in that moment, you you feel like you're this big, but it's not a bad thing; it's a good thing, because you're just overwhelmed at the magnificence of what you're seeing, at the the beauty of the landscape that's before you. And I can remember we went on a little hiking trail along one of the sides of that, that canyon that would go down into the canyon a little bit. And I can remember not, not being afraid of the canyon like I would think of being afraid of, of, of someone attacking me. I knew, I knew that the canyon was solid. I knew the pathway was secure. But there was, there was a little bit of trepidation in my heart. There was a little bit of a, of a carefulness because I knew this canyon was dangerous, even though it was so beautiful and, and glorious in what I was seeing. And, and, and as I would go down the pathway, I knew it wasn't something to do flippantly. I didn't run and jump and get off the, tra- the trail. I knew I'd, I should stick on the trail because there is danger to go left or to go right off the trail. That, that, that this is the way I, I go. And, 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 and the walk, as I think about all that was in my heart and my mind in that, that moment, I think it correlates so well to what the fear of God is. It's not that, oh my goodness, God's going to get me. God's out to condemn me. God's out to trick me. It's not that God is moody and capricious and, and, and up there seeking to condemn humanity. No, God is, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's a God who is righteous and holy and just, but He's also a God of grace and mercy and salvation and, and great love towards us. And he's, he's constant. He's given us the way and He's given us His Word. I don't have to question what He desires of me. He's told me. He's he's shown me the way. He is the light. But when I go towards Him, just as I walk through that pathway in that canyon, there's a little bit of a fear, a right fear, that's not burdensome, but is actually... It's, it's exhilarating. It's, in, it's filled with joy. It's filled with awe and amazement, a reverence of the landscape before me, a reverence of, of God Almighty who has chosen me and called me to be His son, to be His child, to live for Him, to, to serve Him. The, the fear of the Lord. It's a fear that was filled with joy and peace, a fear that captivated my heart and my mind, a fear that demanded my attention, a fear that guided my every step. Jesus says to His disciples, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear Him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all 
numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Heavenly Father, we thank you for you being the great God Almighty that you are. Lord, loving us as you do, providing a way for us as you have through Christ to know you, giving to us your word that we can understand your commandments and know, Lord, not only what is glorifying to you, but what is best for us and the commandments that you have given. Lord, as we come to worship you and as we leave this place even to worship you for the days that lie ahead this week, Lord, may we do so with acceptable worship and reverence and in godly fear. Lord, if there be any here that need to repent of sin because they've been living as if you don't see them, they're not in this house. Lord, I pray that they would fall under conviction, that they'd repent and confess and find you were gracious and merciful, faithful to forgive them of their every trespass. Lord, if there be any here that have never turned to you, be any here who have been the fool who says there is no God, and yet you are showing yourself to them even now in this moment, and they've never felt your presence, your, your weightiness, your glory, as they are feeling it now through your word and your spirit. May they repent and believe. May they turn to Christ and find He is the one who can save and 